Hello, comrades. It's episode 158 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. For your premium episode this week, we are going to get back into the Hillary J. Allen paper that we discussed uh, in the free episode earlier this week. We only got through... I mean, really, like, just over a third of her paper, like the setup. Um, but there, but it was worth spending a lot of time recapping kind of, uh, you know, the shadow banking of Wall Street, uh, you know, leading up to the, the global financial crash, because it's, it's a immensely important context to understand, um, for, uh, Allen's really interesting and I think uh, systematic and rigorous uh, art comparative analysis here um, that we really have to understand how that sh- how shadow banking worked in the first instance to understand how it is unfolding in new but very similar ways uh, in this instance. I mean, I think this is just generally a theme with Web three and and you know, and I kind of count DeFi as a core pillar of Web three. Um, you know, with, but, but within that kind of, uh, a, a broader regime. But I think this is a really key point here that we see over and over again is that so much of Web3 is in many ways just old wine poured into new bottles, but served by many of the same people. Um, and, and, and I think Hillary Allen's ar- argument here really shows that and shows that in a in a in a clear way and a consequential way that there's a lot of old wine being poured in the new bottles here and the consequences of that are entirely predictable uh and and unfolding in ways that are unsurprising um but it is really nice to have as we'll walk through a super rigorous analysis that really lays this out in clear detail. Um, you know, Ed, Jeremy, and I were talking about this before we uh, started recording about the paper, but it was like, man, a lot of what's in this paper is stuff we've been saying on the podcast, we've been saying on Twitter, we've been saying elsewhere for a while. Um, and, but, but what we basically have here is just a ton more detail uh, and a ton more evidence uh, fleshing out and corroborating what was to us um, a kind of, you know, an initial analysis that's, you know, what seemed to be the case. And here we have Alan essentially confirming that fact um, with, a, with a lot more detail. So just as a, a brief little recap, and then we'll really get into the meat of, of, of DeFi as shadow banking 2.0. Um, but, you know, in the free episode, we really walk through three particularly important um, you know, financial innovations or, or really complex, intricate financial instruments uh, and, and the kind of core dynamics there that, that Alan lays out. So, you know, we first have the credit default swaps uh, allow people to have uh, lots of exposure to the same, allow lots of different people to have lots of exposure to the same underlying bond or financial asset. Therefore, you know, creating essentially unlimited leverage as well. So, so unlimited, creating unlimited debt as a way to then have uh, uh, exposure to real material financial assets, you know, creating a, a, a system that is 
highly over leveraged. So lots of debt, too much debt, too much debt for anything to anybody to handle if something goes wrong, as it does. Then we saw the rigidity of mortgage-backed securities. So creating what were, you know, after the uh, crash, um, kind of, you know, labeled as suicide packs, right? That these, um, you know, essentially once, uh, once the system starts to unfold, once the dominoes start top toppling uh, these mortgage-backed securities, there's there's very little flexibility there to get out of the way, to uh, limit collateral damage, um, to contain the blast zone of all uh, of this bubble bursting of all these uh, um, you know toxic assets wrapped up in these uh, you know triple A rated securities. Um, from essentially causing, you know, huge banks to have bankrupts, uh, to go under bankruptcy, to, to collapse. So, so we, so we see that kind of rigidity there of these suicide packs that, um, you know, really lock people into, uh, toxicity and bankruptcy. Um, and, and then the third one, the third the dynamic we talked about was with money market mutual funds. Uh, and there we have, the uh, susceptibility to bank runs, you know, so something that appears to that that markets itself as a like a savings account um, tries to act like a savings account, but in reality is just uh, getting people to deposit their money into what they think is a safe place. But in re- but but it's act but they're actually just getting exposure to a lot of underlying to to a, a collective fund of different bonds and assets and then you know as soon as something goes wrong in the the market and people's money starts you know losing value uh, then you know they're like well shit I need to pull my money out of here. Uh, and then that causes this like domino effect again of these, you know, of fire cells, um, you know, hyper depression of the asset, uh, market. Uh, people start losing all of their savings, start losing all their money. Um, you know, and maybe the government does or doesn't step in to provide some kind of federal, um, like ad hoc federal deposit insurance. But, you know, so there we, again, we see that with uh, money market mutual funds, this kind of uh, susceptibility to panic in the consumer market. So that's, that's the kind of, uh, you know, really brief summary there, all really important to understand as we get into DeFi, because there's a lot of one-to-one comparisons that Alan is drawing here. So, you know, I'll just actually read her really brief summary of uh, what's to come, and then we'll get into it in depth. So she writes, um, you know, One, the unlimited production of tokens can introduce more leverage into the system, potentially outstripping the leverage associated with credit default swaps in the lead up to the 2008 crisis. Two, smart contracts are designed to be even more rigid than the mechanisms that turned mortgage-backed securitizations into suicide pacts during the crisis. Three, stable coins share many of the features of money market mutual funds that made them susceptible to runs in 2008 and again in 2020. So there we go. So we're, we're going to get into this in depth, but so we have the ways that, you know, that, that cryptocurrency, to, uh, that, you know, these, these tokens, uh, these smart contracts and these stable coins are, um, acting like a kind of new generation of, 
um, financial innovations, fintech innovations uh, that are setting us on the pathway towards, um, uh, you know, well, already creating a shadow banking 2.0, right? An unregulated sphere of financial um, uh, services and activities, but, you know, also setting us on the pathway towards replicating the outcome of shadow banking under Wall Street, um, which was a global financial crash that crashed that completely, you know, the Great Depression, as it was called. Um, and so here we see ourselves on the pathway towards a very similar um, outcome, uh, but this time through shadow banking under Silicon Valley. And, you know, just as a preview for the end of uh, the, of, of Alan's paper that we'll get to, you know, at, uh, near the end of our, of this episode, uh, you know, this is not inevitable. It might be imminent if we don't do anything about it, but it's still early days. Um, DeFi is still nation. It is still not fully integrated with traditional or actual financial sector, um, in a way that makes it un, you know, uh, uh, able to be contained, um, and separated. Uh, and so, but, and so this is key. Uh, is that you know? As we lay this out, keep that in mind that that the the problems that are are obvious uh, if if this is left untouched are not uh, yet overdetermined, not yet inevitable. Um, but avoiding them does require um, actively doing something about it now. So, all right, with that preamble, let's get into DeFi as shadow banking and talk first about. Uh, about leverage in DeFi. Um, Ed, I'll throw it over to you here um, if you want to uh, get, get us... Yeah, walk us through how leverage uh, is operating in, in DeFi through, through coins and currency. One way to look at it is that the decentralized finance system has a lot of new ways for people to create assets that could have as of yet realized value and then integrate them or point them or incorporate them into other financial products and services on the premise that these things have value. They just need to be realized. They just need to be activated. They just need to be exposed or invested in so blah, 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 right? Another way to look at it is that you and I, if we had enough money, could create a token out of thin air especially if we knew how to do the code, um, or especially if we knew how to code these tokens and, and the smart contracts underlying them, right? And then we can use the money to buy promoters, influencers, to pump up our coin. And then we can use that to leverage the coin as a loan to acquire assets and then go on, so on and so forth, right? You know, as, as Alan writes, you know, this is dangerous because... It creates an asset bubble, right? And an asset, you know, an asset bubble, the, the larger it grows and the more worthless or the more dubious the value of the underlying assets of that asset bubble are, then what happens when the bubble bursts? Then you have the fire sales and you have to dump even more assets, right? Which means you have to trade more. You know, you have to do more trading and uh, transactions, as she writes, and this creates operational problems. You know, she writes that distributed ledgers often struggle to scale and could become overwhelmed at peak times. These operational failures can have their own spillover effects. One recent example of this is one I just wrote about. On over the weekend, Yuga Labs, the creator of Board Ape uh, Yacht Club, Mutant Ape Yacht Club, um, ApeCoin, um, some of the most valuable properties inside of the NFT space, offered a new NFT 
right? This was called Other Deed. It was supposed to be a land, a virtual land NFT, an NFT rep- representing virtual land in a metaverse gaming project called Other Side. That's backed by Ubisoft and A16Z, right? Um, the project is not released. It's not really clear what it's going to look like, but people wanted the land nonetheless because it was backed by Yuga Labs, which has created all these other ventures that are valuable because they're self-referential. When they opened up the sale at 9 p.m. on April 30th, the demand and transaction volume was so high that on the Ethereum network, they clogged it, they increased the gas fees, and people were paying thousands of dollars for NFTs that cost elsewhere right? On OpenSea, the average transaction or the transactions were going as high, I should say, not the average one, but the transactions were going as high as $4,400, you know, because the way that the Ethereum network works, right? The gas fees are fees that you pay to cover the cost of computation so so that the transaction can be verified in the distributed network of computers that are supposed to be operating in this world computer. Gas fees increase when there are too many transactions, and so you want to incentivize your transaction to be verified first at a node, and so you add a sort of tip, right? A priority tip, it's called. And so as the network was getting congested, people with more and more Ethereum were paying more and more tips to increase the the prioritization of their transaction, right? Um, and increasing the base cost of transactions across the entire network. So projects that had nothing to do with the Yuga Lab shit were now having to pay higher fees, and as a result, unsustainable, becoming unsustainable or unusable outright. So that's just one consequence or one predictable consequence when you have these ledgers that are unable to scale properly and get overwhelmed at peak times and then have consequences because of that. People, a lot of the transactions fail. And then you still pay the gas fee. So you paid $5,000, $4,000 to prioritize a transaction and it still failed. You paid $500. You paid $700, right? And you didn't get the thing that you wanted for whatever reason. You know, another consequence uh, connected to what was talked about earlier with credit default swaps is that we have regulations as imperfect and flawed as they are, and with loopholes the size of the Grand Canyon, we have regulations about how much capital needs to be involved, what has to be in reserve, uh, the rate at which or the ratios at which you can uh, trade on the margins. These are all used to limit the amount of leverage in the financial system. But in decentralized markets, we're seeing that leverage is much higher than in regulated exchanges, and especially in the decentralized exchanges, the DEXs that dominate a lot of the DeFi ecosystem. So as they write, uh, market practices requiring DeFi transactions to be over-collateralized with stablecoins could theoretically act as a constraint on leverage in the DeFi system. But when stablecoins are used as collateral for loans, the proceeds of these loans are often used as collateral for other loans, which can then be used as collateral for further loans, and so on. And in any event, market practices around over-collateralization are not the same as regulatory requirements. Market practices allowed AIG to issue naked CDSs in the lead-up to the 2008 crisis. And so now we see a situation in which tokens are being used, similar to the ways that uh, credit default swaps were used, to create ways for you to synthetically expose yourself to real-world assets without actually holding the real-world assets, right? We have synthetic stocks, 
right? We have synthetic exposure to to commodities. We have synthetic exposure uh, to um, indexes, to funds. All of this in a bid to try to give people or give investors more places to put their money, more places to get a return, um, but at the same time, introducing more risk and instability to the financial system. All of this, the asset bubble, the over-collateralization, right? uh, the replacement of CDSs with, uh, with uh, stable coins, increased the risk of these fire sales. And a fire sale did happen, right? Fire sales happened in t- September 2021. Because of delever, and as a result of deleveraging, right, there was, uh, you know, as they write, forced liquidation, forced liquidations, derivatives positions, loans on DeFi platforms accompanied sharp price falls and spikes in volatility. And this is referenced in the Bank of International Settlements report. Okay, so what we're seeing now is that DeFi at least has the capacity for the sort of unlimited leverage building and that this unlimited leverage building can also result in deleveraging and fire sales just like it did in the traditional finance system but also that there is an that there is an increasingly an ability of decentralized finance ecosystems to affect the main uh, there was um, that you can see now relationships established between the performance of crypto portfolios and investments and equities, especially during market volatility. And the IMF uh, wrote that increased crypto stocks correlation raises the possibility of spillovers of investment sentiment between those asset classes, right? So what we're seeing now is convergence on a multitude of fronts, increase of leveraging mechanisms, a lack of adequate regulation, uh, over-collateralization, right? A growing asset bubble, an increased connection between uh, crypto investments and real-world investments, synthetic exposure, and now also adoption by financial institutions. Financial institutions like JP Morgan are now trying to get invested in blockchain or at least research it to roll out their own blockchain products, that they're all trying to issue stable coins now to compete with Tether or USDC, uh, that they're trying to integrate a KYC requirements, right? Know your client requirements. These are requirements. They're anti-money laundering requirements that are put in place that financial institutions have to deal with that require them to identify, be able to reliably identify the customer and ensure that their real identity, verify the identity, right? And increasingly, you see that centralized exchanges are required. Centralized exchanges are required to abide by these regulations. And now the banks are flirting with the idea that KYC wallets, wallets that would be able to be accepted on at Coinbase, for example, um, should now be incorporated into their own businesses. This is all to say that, you know, it feels very much like on the precipice or on the road to a huge deleveraging scenario. Um, as Alan writes, you know, or Alan raises the point, there's a good question, you know, what are the possibilities that could cause this sort of deleveraging, right? Right. There could be a problem with an intermediary on which DeFi relies. These intermediaries are discussed in detail in Section 4, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. That DeFi is also rife with scams and forks, hacks, rug pulls, vampire attacks, and flash loans all have the potential to surprise, erode trust, and spark fear. 
While these types of events have not yet destroyed confidence in DeFi, most current users are likely to be hardcore believers in the technology and thus are both understanding of the risk and willing to forgive them. But if DeFi is widely adopted, I don't. it's reasonable to assume that this is not going to actually be the case, right? That a lot of the people operate on this logic, and we've talked about it in other episodes, that, you know, it's all on you. If you fuck up in the crypto ecosystem, it's all on you. You should not have clicked that link. You should have gotten a cold wallet. You should have been more scrupulous with your investment. You should have understood that this is a risk, that you're buying something that, you know, in the Wild West could eat your lunch one day and make you rich another All of these baked-in attitudes are taken as wisdom, uh, the accumulated knowledge, but but they're actually irrational behaviors. And they're irrational behaviors that won't be adopted by the widespread public if DeFi were to be widely adopted. And once the overriding ethos is to accept the risk, once uh, there's an erosion of that overriding ethos to accept the risk and keep pushing forward and believe in the technology and believe in the future that is built, which would be more likely to happen if it's not just hardcore believers, that's when you start to see the deleveraging, right? That's when you start to see people who get burned exit. That's when you start to see people who realize that they have some exposure exit. And this is the concern that, you know, already There are a bunch of ways and avenues for contagion to spread, but it's increasingly growing connected to the real economy uh, that does not share uh, the, the, the hard stomach, I guess. I don't, but even that's not the proper way to think about it because it's not that these people are just have like a tougher or braver. So these people are much more irrational, get rewarded for that irrational behavior. You know, as we see it grow and get more adopted, if it gets more adopted, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which these people don't turn and run and crumble a system, which then gets infected, which is then growing more incorporated into the wider economy, has more, multiple routes for contagion, already has asset bubbles inside of it, already has lesser requirements on capital required, on reserves, on margins, and already has multiple ways to over-collateralize, infecting the real economy uh, with spillover effects once it bursts. <laughs> And this is really important as well, is that this last point you brought up, yo, Matt Damon told me that you got to be bold, though, Ed. You know that that's the oh that's what Matt Damon told me, um, <laughs> but but this is but this is a, this is important because it, it, if it were the case, you know, as you've written about, as you talked about in Tech Won't Save Us, uh, you know, this week, if it were the case that uh, this was just like a casino where it was just a place you can go, you know, like a casino, you know, you spend some money, you lose some money, you have fun along the way, maybe you uh, you have a bad bet, maybe you get a little bit too deep. You know, maybe you lose a finger, you know, to a loan shark or something like that, you know, but it's like, hey, that stuff happens in the casino. It shouldn't spill out into the larger uh, economy. And, you know, you're in the casino. It's like it's like Westworld, you know, hey, you're in this place, Uh, you know, some wild shit could happen. Who's wild? wild? (laughs) It's like some wild shit could happen. um, But also like, you know, you can have a lot of fun and you can but you could also lose your, you know, lose everything. But if you don't want to if you don't want to engage in that kind of risky behavior, then don't then then stay outside. 
But here's the problem is that, you know, as is so often the case, you know, these people want to, you know, they want to have it both ways. Um, they want to, on one hand, have that plausible deniability. They want to have those, you know, notice boards that say like, you know, enter at your own risk. But they also want your mom and your grandma and your uncle and your auntie and everybody else to, to, to get, to put all their money into this, you know? They want everybody to be part of this. And they are particularly and explicitly targeting people who don't understand how it works, who don't have an understanding of those risks. I can say that I have been cornered in someone's house on five separate occasions to try and to invest in their business. And you know what type of business I'm talking about? Uh, well, I guess I can say it because we're behind a fucking paywall. It was a fucking pyramid scheme. Yeah. Yeah, they want you to invest in their Amway or their Mary exactly. Kay. But you imagine imagine going to a casino, getting addicted on the games, and then telling your friends and family that they should come play too. Or better yet, going to the casino, losing all your money, and then telling all your friends and family, hey, this is great. You should also lose all your money. I mean, if if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go to a casino and lose my money, at least I'm gonna drink free on it. So you're not gonna catch me in any of those Bitcoin <laughs> casinos. I'm gonna be in the IRL ones. That's right, hitting them nickel slots, getting those free drinks, getting the buffet yeah. voucher. <laughs> gonna make just enough money to hit the buffet and while lit on watered down Crown and Coke. <laughs> but so i mean this is a this is fundamentally a big problem here and it gets to what what ed was talking about what alan is talking about as well is that this um it's this, this these channels of contagion right that like you know web3 uh is not uh, explicitly not uh, uh content with just being contained to one little sector, one casino. It has to. It needs to take over the entire economy, as Ed has written and talked about. You know, it needs to create, it needs to turn the economy into a casino. It can't just be a casino within the economy um, because it needs, that's what that kind of scale is what it, you know, needs to grow. And also, you know, because it's all zero sum, you need more and more people to get in in order to create liquidity. You know, you can't cash out on your NFTs. You can't cash out on your, uh, on your tokens or your stable coins unless you got other people in there cashing in, you know, that, and that's, that's what's required here. The, the over leveraging aspect is also really important. I, I, I can't remember which one of the like eight guys who runs Tether. Um, you know, Tether is the largest stable coin. Um, and we'll get, we'll talk more about stable coins in, in a little bit once we get to the, uh, the third, uh, section of Alan's analysis looking at comparison with, with bank runs and stable coins. But it was like, you know, there's only like eight guys who run Tether. Um, and what isn't their CEO like, like, uh, you know, an anonymous person? It's, that's another thing with these motherfuckers. Their CEO is one of the most trustworthy people in the world. He's so trustworthy that you can't know who he is. Because you, you can't know who he is, is and nobody's ever seen a picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of fucking Mr. Robot shit is that? <laughs> like, oh my god. But it might have been him, but he said, you know, it's one of these tether one of these tether guys said that like when I need money, I just create a token. He admitted. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're in the wrong. He business. admitted. 
We shouldn't be creating episodes. We should be creating tokens for each episode that we do. We that's, should. What, that's the real, that's the real galaxy brain, baby. <laughs> We're fucking up. Um, <laughs> this TMK brought to you by SilverAmerica.com. Come on <laughs> in and buy your, buy your 10 ounce sil- silver bullions, not backed by the U S government, but it'll yeah. still make you money in the apocalypse. Cause people are going to want valuable minerals. We'll make <laughs> an FNFT. Right, it's a fungible, non-fungible token. So you get, <laughs> you buy an NFT, and it's paired with a fungible asset, a photo of the NFT that you bought, which is a photo, but on the internet. Right, <laughs> you take that and you take it into any of our locations, and it will be redeemable um, for a for a token that uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But this is another wild thing here is that like, they are so explicit about, about like the shenanigans that they do. I mean, like just admitting, right? Like if I need money, I create a token, which is essentially saying that like, yeah, no, I create, uh, you know, I, I can create infinite leverage and then use that to buy, um, or, or have exposure to real world financial assets. Like, this is not hypothetical. This is not theoretical. This is not speculative. Ooh, what if they did this? Or I wonder if they're doing this. They admit this is what they're doing. As Alan calls it, right? It's that irrational exuberance. They think they're Teflon. They think they're untouchable. Uh, and what we see in, instead is like, you know, it's not as if Wall Street operates on a, a sluggish pace. You know, they're all about speed and acceleration too. But it, it is wild to see the way that DeFi, which is new, you know, Bitcoin, all right, Bitcoin 2008. But like this kind of current stage of DeFi with the explosion of coins and tokens uh, and so on is pretty new. And it's really quite wild to see how they are like, you know, a, you know, accelerating the pace of development here really putting pedal to the metal uh of of just you know uh, accelerating this this vehicle you know these financial vehicles to extend that metaphor that are heading directly towards a brick wall um and one that we can see but oh no there's no steering wheel right Mm. like that like it's uh fucking someone call keanu reeves because we're in speed i need we need i gotta stop this bus I got to stop this bus. <laughs> no, there's no stopping the bus. You have to take it. Or or actually, you know, it's like, um, I mean, Cory Doctorow said, you know, you have to hijack the bus. I think that that's the spirit of what they said. Hijack the bus. Exactly. Exactly. Even if the bus is careening off a cliff. Drive it into another bus that's hijacked. <laughs> there we go. Together, that we can stop them from going off the cliff if we ran them into each other. That's right. Uh, two, <laughs> Prisoners now this, is, now, this be, now this is becoming a math like a like a math problem. So it's like, hi, right, <laughs> bus one leaves uh, station A at sixty <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> bus B. <laughs> you yeah. have you have, you you can pull a lever and bus one will uh, hit no one. Um, I I'm trying to figure <laughs> oh, it now out. Now it's a trolley problem too. Yeah, yeah. No, what's the trolley problem where it's like uh, you can do nothing in the trolley and it's going to hit no, three it's like, okay, people. Bus one, bus one isn't going to hit anybody. You can do nothing and bus one won't hit any other bus. You can pull the levy and bus one will mow through bus two and kill everybody on board. What are you going to do? <laughs> 
It's a hard problem, isn't it? (laughs) All right, let's move on. We open up the rigidity section saying, okay, well, look, over-leveraging an aspect or an element of the financial system or an entire financial system are bad, but there are ways to escape it. The primary one is flexibility. Because if you have flexibility during the cycle where it busts, where the asset bubble burst, right, then you can free the largest entities of their debt obligations. You don't have to have them respond to margin calls. They don't have to repay loans, right? Uh, They don't have to have the fire sales and the bankruptcies that will have spillover effects that will crash everything. But as we've talked about at length, smart contracts are way too rigid to allow any sort of this. Smart contracts are coded as they are to be law. Any loopholes, any bugs, any exploits are there and cannot be remedied unless another contract is rolled out, right? Another token in, in, uh, is rolled out with this contract. Um, you have to audit the code, you have to redo it, you have to test it, then you have to roll it out again, right? A lot of times the smart contracts are constructed, people didn't do the necessary testing, or they didn't foresee every single possible outcome, and so their rigid structure fails and is exploited in this or that situation. And as she writes, You have to remember, smart contracts are designed to execute their pre-programmed instructions instantly, right, without waiting for input from the parties or regulator or court. And the argument there is that this makes things more efficient. You don't need trust between parties. You don't need good faith. They have to abide by the letter of the contract, by the letter of the law. That efficiency, that, that speed, that expediency is just the same when there's a bad transaction. Right, You can exploit them with hackers to steal tokens, to drain liquidity pools of the tokens, to execute flash loan attacks, which are these relatively, I mean, they can be complicated schemes, to use an exploit or use a hole in some smart contract to be able to create, take out massive amounts of some token, loan it, leverage it as collateral on another loan. And keep doing this in ways that can either drain the liquidity pool, create free or extra tokens for yourself, and otherwise make off with crypto that you shouldn't have in the first place. So we know that smart contracts are flawed and yet they're rigid. They're immutable. They're permanent. Things that happen on the blockchain are not meant to be reversed. What does that mean for a financial system that has them at the basis of um, at the basis of the uh, financial system, especially when contracts aren't always supposed to be permanent, right? We've talked about how smart contracts, um, there are many situations in which you might want to build up goodwill. And so you might not want a contract to execute in full, or you might not want a contract to be clearly articulated because you want to build up trust and goodwill between people and, part- and participants in a transaction because then that can lessen and disincentivize um, mediation through other actors, right? Uh, that you can you can foster goodwill and beneficial contracts, more beneficial than you might otherwise do if you're doing a cold calculation, are more mutually harmonious arrangements than if you sat down with lawyers and figured out what was the ideal balance between these two things. So then the question becomes, what would the financial system look like? What can a financial system look like if the basis is a contract that always executes exactly the way that it looks? And what might it look like if smart contracts didn't execute or didn't always automatically execute? This is where we get a little bit more into the loans, right? You know, decentralized loans, as we've talked about, they're 
they automatically liquidate if you don't have sufficient collateral, right? That's some of the magic of these flash loans is that they're supposed to be instantly done. I'm put up collateral for a loan to buy an asset to immediately get it back and repay it back often in the same transaction. And usually these flash loans are so instantaneous, so they're used for very specific situations, right? Which is to do arbitrage, right? To take advantage of mismatches in markets, right? So let going back to the flash loan example and the collateral, right? You know, if the collateral, if the if the if the funds that are loaned, you know, evaporate in value, I'm fucked because then I have to sell up other assets in addition to the collateral, right, to pay back, um, you know, what I borrowed. And as they write, you know, there might be situations where it would be better not to liquidate a loan in this fashion. And yet the execution of a DAP can only be paused, changed, or undone with the consent of whoever controls it. So control of the DAP might lie with the creators of the DAP, or those creators may have ceded control to a DAO, right, to decentralized autonomous organizations we talked about who have governance tokens issued by how much money you've put into the entity, or with founders, investors, friends, insiders usually getting a priority and a better deal than everyone else. Okay, so let's say you do want to change the way that a DAP works or a DAO. You have to find the coordinators, uh, the creators. You have to coordinate a dispersed group of uh, governance token holders, right? This takes time. You can't do it in the automatic execution time window of a smart contract. Okay, so what if you want to undo the transaction? Well, you can't undo the transaction usually because this requires you to change the distributed ledger. But they're decentralized and they're permissionless. So there's no single central entity who could unroll that. It would require the consensus of the majority or all the nodes on the ledger, which would take time okay, to, to approve a transaction or to reverse a transaction. Right? As one example, there was a DAO that was hacked in 2016 and it took over a month for the nodes of the Ethereum distributed ledger to coordinate the response. So smart contracts are too rigid to allow flexible, immediate responses because they operate with automatic execution. That is immediate, right? And so maybe you can take steps to better audit the code and anticipate scenarios and unexpected events. Maybe you can create a code that might adapt to unexpected um, events. Maybe you create a contract that refers to or consults other entities. You know, an example here is a smart contract that consults another smart contract or external data source known as an oracle that's controlled by a trusted party. But then doing this increases transaction costs, right? Because those gas costs that we talked about earlier, that there's, the gas is not an imaginary fee. It's the cost for computation. So consulting an oracle increases the amount of transactions, which increases the cost of computation, which increases the gas fee that you have to pay, right? So this means that you have to enter a balance in which you're asking yourself, how much uh, flexibility do I want to put into this? And how much more expensive do I want the computations to be, especially at the high volume and high frequency? Individuals may be willing to bear that cost up to a certain point, but the, the incentives here to minimize those sort of costs, right? To minimize them because they're unusual events, are there events that people, again, have the irrational mindset and ethos of bearing the risk for? And it, as a result, fucks with the risk tolerance that they have. They have a much higher risk tolerance than they might otherwise have in a traditional system uh, because they're hardcore believers. And so they have a much lower tolerance for additional transactional costs, right? 
these are the types of things that, you know, as Alan wrote about, turned mortgage-backed securities into suicide packs. The refusal to account for low-probability, high-consequence events that would have massive spillover effects for the system if they happened ever. And as a result, smart contracts may prove even more dangerous because self-execution doesn't allow time for emergency intervention, which means that spillover effects will be felt immediately or as soon to immediacy as possible. Absolutely. I mean, you know, really, really well laid out here. You know, it makes me think as well, there's a, uh, and we'll, we'll get into this just, you know, very, very briefly as well. There's a problem of fragility, right? That like, you know, resilience of a financial system is immensely important, but it is also this thing that as, uh, uh as Alan writes about, you know, it, it's a collective resource that people, that can have, uh, a kind of, you know, a tragedy of the commons type um, situation happening with resilience of a financial system uh, is that, you know, it, in order to maintain that resilience, you know, and maintain that flexibility that require that, that allows a financial system to continue operating uh, well, to be able to weather storms that happen, to be able to uh, minimize and contain, um, you know, spillover effects and larger externalities. That resilience doesn't just happen naturally. It happens as a, as a result of people maintaining it through relationships, uh, partnerships, um, and maintenance largely of, you know, the very large institutions within the system. So this is, you know, this is what you were talking about with like, you know, ensuring that contracts uh, have flexibility built into them so that there can be these kinds of uh, emergency interventions that happen, you know? And, and, and sometimes that means reducing the efficiency or expediency of transactions, you know, putting some time lag in there uh, you know, that, that allows for things to be reviewed, allows for things to be responded to. But that's a necessary trade-off. You know, you trade off a little efficiency, a little expediency, and in return, you get flexibility and resiliency. But as we know, you know, these technologies and the people that create them um, ide- are ideologically, uh, you know, slavish to efficiency and optimization. You know, they treat these as divine goods, divine ends that, uh, you know, are, are prioritized above all else. And we see the consequences of that move fast, break things mentality. Um, it makes me think of, you know, there's a metaphor within the academic field of, you know, um, complex systems uh, and the, the study of resilience within these complex systems. There's a, there's a metaphor here is that you want to be the sapling, not the oak. Um, you know, the oak tree stands really tall and strong, but is also rigid. And in these, you know, low probability but high consequence events like a hurricane, a, ca- a category five hurricane, the oak tree snaps, it breaks, you know, it stands strong in normal times, but it is rigid. It has no flexibility. And when a, when the, when the catastrophe strikes, it breaks the sap, you know, that's fragility in the system. It, it's a, um, uh, there are, you know, there are fail safes, but there is no safe fail state uh, in that system. There's no safe way for it to fail. 
On the other hand, what you want to do is you want to be the sapling. You know, the sapling uh, can bend and it can flex in the storm without breaking. It'll take some damage. You need to straighten it back out. You need to provide, you know, provide it with some uh, some support in the form of emergency interventions and so on. But it's not going to break. It's resilient. It has a uh, it, it has a safe fail state. Um, so rather than relying on fail safes, you know, preventing any failure, it's saying failure is inevitable. So we need to be able to fail safely. But what we see here with the rigidity that Alan is outlining. First with mortgage-backed securities, um, and then with, and now with smart contracts, is it there isn't that flexibility that there isn't that ability to have uh, safe fail states. Instead, when failure happens, it happens catastrophically, um, and this is a you know this is a massive problem, and it's as you pointed out uh, a problem that. You know, with smart contracts is even more dangerous than what we saw with uh, the suicide packs of you know uh, mortgage-backed securities. Um, you know, it, it, it call something a suicide pack. I'm staying away from that. You know, it's bad when the smart contract is even worse. Yeah. I mean, a smart contract is a smart way of doing a suicide pact, I guess. <laughs> you know? That's right. That's right. We are automating uh, execution, if you know what I mean. Yeah. The third kind of prong of Alan's analysis here, looking at runs. So here we'll get into stable coins. Um, something that uh, you have written and thought a lot more about than me. It's a jump in at any moment. But you know, with with runs, uh, you know, as as I was as I talked about in the free episode, as I mentioned, uh, you know, summarized at the top of this show. Right here is the analysis uh, comparative between mortgage uh, money market mutual funds. And uh, and stable coins. So you know these uh, money market mutual funds were created um, and marketed as uh, kind of functional equivalents of deposit accounts, you know, savings accounts. Um, and because of that, they were susceptible to the same kind of vulnerabilities of a deposit of deposit accounts in the form of traditional bank runs. But unlike deposit accounts, they actually were not regulated and and insured as such. Um, and so what we see here uh, is with stable coins is uh, a number of people within DeFi kind of treating stable coins like deposit accounts in the same way that people previously treated money market mutual funds like deposit accounts. But they're not, you know, um, this means that they are susceptible to bank runs. Um, like deposit accounts. This means that they are being held used as the kind of building blocks of DeFi because you know stable is in the name. You know, we just spent a long time talking about stability and fragility and the importance of stability. You know, what better way to market stability than to put it right there in the name? Stable coin. Uh, put your money and what that is saying is, you know, put your money in tether 
or USDC, you know, a cryptocurrency that is pegged to the US dollar typically. Um, although there is all, there is also a lot of discussion. I've been seeing it in Australia, for example, among uh, fintech people of being like, we need our own national stable coin. You know, we need to escape the hegemony of the US dollar um, peg system by having stable coins pegged to the Australian dollar, stable coins pegged to the British pound, stable coins pegged to the euro. Um, Ed, you would know more than I. I don't know how many of these uh, other kinds of uh, currency pegged stable coins actually exist, but I know there's a lot of discussion about it. Yeah, there are, There, you know, it gets messy because there are these stable coins, which are the crypt, you know, they're crypto stable coins. They're central bank, uh, back, you know, central bank digital currencies. Uh, they're asset backed stable coins, um, that aren't technically stable coins because they're not pegged to a currency that is probably more stable than some commodity. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, there's there is a vast variety of stable coins um, that you can imagine that are backed um, by the central banks, by centralized issuers, um, and then there are others that are decentralized, like Dai, right? That are offered that are algorithmic in some instances, right? Where they're not actually pegged to assets, but they are supposed to have a bunch of processes which keep their value within a certain parameter, right? Yeah, magically with, with algorithms. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and so, right. So, but the, the moral of the story here is that, you know, that people are using stable coins as these kind of building blocks of the in DeFi, you know, they're using them like deposit, uh, you know, deposit accounts. Um, but the, uh, uh, the redemption mechanics for stable coins are, really complicated and oftentimes really opaque and uncertain you know how do you when you buy you know one one tether is you know it's a dollar one dollar for one coin you know that's what that that's what it means to be a stable coin that's what it means for it to be pegged when you when you buy that you know when you buy a dollar worth of tether or you know whatever however many dollars worth of tether all right that means that you're giving tether fiat Real sus that they're accepting fiat too. I mean, let me just throw that out there. Real, real <laughs> sus for Tether to be accepting fiat. <laughs> what you doing with that fiat? Huh? Hey, what's up? Huh? What's you secure, up? <laughs> you supporting the U.S. government? Is that what you're doing? Got questions. Anyways, <laughs> so when you when you buy Tether, you give Tether money. But when you want to when you want to exchange your Tether back into uh, dollars. It's really unclear how that actually happens. Like how a stablecoin holder actually is a is actually able to redeem those coins. So as as Alan writes, you know, Tether, for example, does not allow U.S. resident holders of its stablecoins to redeem them directly from Tether. So holders are forced to go to a crypto exchange like Coinbase if they want to convert their Tether to fiat currency. So automatically raising a lot of questions that like you can buy your Tether uh, you know, you can buy your stable coins from Tether, but when you want to turn that that those tokens back into uh, U.S. fiat currency, you have to go to another intermediary uh, like Coinbase or like FTX, uh, right? And 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 do it there. Why? It's you know, Alan goes on right. 
It's not clear whether these exchanges are contractually obligated to exchange tether for uh, for dollar to exchange, you know, one tether for one dollar or whether they could refuse to do so in some circumstances. Uh, you know, for example, only allowing tether to be exchanged for another cryptocurrency. It's also not clear whether a crypto exchange could turn around after exchanging a tether for a customer and contractually demand that tether give the exchange a dollar for the stable coin. Assuming, though, that the stablecoin holders could demand an exchange for fiat and that the exchanges could demand a redemption for fiat from the stablecoin issuer, um, potentially forcing a liquidation of the reserve, then centralized stablecoins would have many similarities to money market mutual funds. So in other words, what we have here is a situation of uh, two possible, you know, again, all of this is really opaque, which is, uh, you know, really uh, a problem. But we have two possible situations is that one, Tether is, you know, as many people are suspecting, Tether does not actually have uh, uh, liquid reserves to back up all of its stable coins, right? Like, I mean, that's the government, the SEC as investigating some I don't think it was tether it was another stable coin that had a uh, was fined massively for this right ed mm-hmm. it was um tether had a tether had a smaller fine on it I'm trying to remember which one it was, it was tether that had 41 million dollars from the commodity futures trading commission um and then bitfinex um, was also hit in that fine, yeah. Which uh, for one point five million dollars for illegal transactions while operating the currency trading platform and violating a prior CTFC order. Yeah, and Tether was fined uh, in October of last year $41 million over claims that the Tether stablecoin was fully backed by US dollar. So there, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the CFTC, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, you know, is fining these, uh, these, these companies for claiming that the tether, that the stable coins are fully backed by US dollar, making them, you know, a safe bet when in reality they're not. You know, tether is, is likely only holding a fraction of liquid reserves, which means that, uh, you know, tether would be, uh, if, if there was a run on tether, it would, not only cause a huge bank up, you know, it would not only cause bankruptcy for Tether because they wouldn't be able to pay back the, you know, people doing redemptions. Um, you know, it would also cause all these spillover effects. On the other hand, uh, there's another situation, you know, where, well, we could prevent a run on Tether by apparently Tether uh, and through intermediaries like Coinbase are able to just deny people the ability to redeem their 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 tether stable coin for uh for dollars just say well no that you can't do that actually we're not going to allow you to um you can redeem it for another cryptocurrency of equivalent value but you cannot redeem it for us dollars which also makes it really suspect right which you know makes these uh the the whole nominal uh, fun, you know, one of the the anomaly no, main functions of a stable coin, you know, as this kind of a, a stable reserve of dollars, uh, you know, creating a connection between cryptocurrencies and fiat currency, um, 
you know, evaporates. It's false. It's fake. It's a scam. It's a grift. Uh, you know, surprise, surprise. Uh, again, this, this may cause, you know, if that, if, you know, if this were the case and if this were widely experienced that, you know, it could also cause a lot of, uh, loss of confidence here, um, in the, in these stable coins, you know, uh, and so, as Alan writes, you know, uh, run, you know, these kinds of bank runs happen when people lose confidence that a particular asset will continue to rain, remain accessible at the expected value. So whether that's a, you know, shares of a money market mutual fund, whether that's dollars in your savings account, or whether that's the ability to redeem uh, a stable coin for um, the equivalent fiat currency uh, um, value, right? And so when confidence starts dipping, um, then all of a sudden people want, you know, they want to, they want to get their money out of there. You know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's too risky. Um, and when a lot of, when everybody wants to do this at once, then, uh, you know, what, what, what you see is uh, these kind of asset, you know, fire cells that we've talked about as, as the banks or the stablecoin issuers um, try to secure enough liquidity to match those redemptions. Uh, and so, you know, as Alan points out, you know, right now, the vast majority of stablecoins are not actually being used for payments for real world goods and services. You know, they're not being used like currency. They're being used uh, as a speculative you know, uh, asset, as a financial asset, as something to bet on, um, like a lot of cryptocurrency is. You know, it's not actually currency, it's a security. You know, and, and that's how people, people treat it, which means that, you know, ironically, that actually provides a bit more stability to the stable coins because it makes it unlikely that people are going to do a run, um, because they recognize, as we've talked about, that it's a casino. You know, it, even, you know, the, uh, the SEC chair, uh, Gary Gensler has described stable coins as poker chips. That are the price of admission to the casino. So it's not just Ed; it's also the chair of the Securities Exchange Commission, who's like, "Yeah, this is a casino." Yeah, but that's just because I'm a fiat show. I'm a fiat show. You have to remember that. That's, <laughs> that's very funny to be a fiat <laughs> to be called a shill <laughs> for fiat. Motherfucker, <laughs> we're all shill for fiat because I'm trying to get that money. <laughs> you know? In my wallet, I have multiple green currency notes, right? So you can't. I'm just going to be silent for this section because I'm biased. You know, I you can't trust me on this issue. It's it's me watching like like watching old uh, like '90s rap videos and being like, look at all these fucking fiat shills. You know, they they out here throwing money around. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> Not '90s rappers, man. I've seen I've seen Instagram real beef with like modern rappers. Like I don't know what, who was it. Was it? Takashi six nine. Someone was telling him that he was broke, that was and then crazy. like had a bunch of <laughs> stacked hundred dollar bills, and like threw them on the ground, and was like, "Bitch, this is more than you're worth," and shit like that. I mean, you don't see them like you know posing with their Bitcoin wallet with like 
you know, with, with what they got in their Coinbase purses, saying, bitch, I got more money than you do. I wish they would. I would just take a screen <laughs> cap of that wallet. I, <laughs> I was going to say, it would shit. be like somebody posting a picture of their credit card. They'd be like, look at all my credit cards. And you can clearly see the front and back of the credit card. I want someone to do that with their like metal engraved, uh, like, like uh, the key to their crypto wallet. Be like, y'all don't have crypto like me. And then, uh, yeah, just empty that wallet. This is part of the problem here is that as we talked about when people when when the when the uh activities within these defi are contained and you know largely contained to people who you know recognize the risk in large part know that they're in a casino know that they're doing speculative bets um you know know that there is a uh, a, a high chance of being scammed or losing all their money that keeps it contained and it ironically provides a little bit of stability to that system. But once that system starts expanding out to the mainstream um, economy, may, you know, mass uh, consumer market, uh, traditional financial services and sector, then you start getting a lot of people who are using stable coins because they think of it like a deposit account in the way that people did with money market mutual funds. You start getting people who are, you know, uh, uh, buying into the system in ways that they expect a lot more stability. They expect a lot less risk. They expect more confidence in the system um, than the system is able to provide. And so it can create these, these panics, which can then fuel instability and fragility in the system. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if something were to, if, if stable coins were to expand and start being used at like DeFi deposit accounts, uh, and, and then if something were to shake confidence in the stablecoin that it would be accepted in the DeFi ecosystem that could be redeemed for, uh, for cash, um, then, you know, and this something could range from, uh, you know, a big hack, uh, problems with the reserve of assets backing the stablecoins, um, problems with the smart contracts managing the value of a decentralized stablecoin like DAI. Um, in other words, the types of problems we see constantly <laughs> in the system. Um, there are hacks. There's no, uh, there, there's insufficient reserves. There's, uh, you know, um, fucked up smart contracts. Um, if one of these things, let alone a confluence of these things were to happen, you know, that could shake the confidence. And then we would, ex we should expect uh, a run on Tether, a run on USDC, a run on DAI, um, as a bunch of people seek to uh, uh, redeem their stable coins for cash. Um, again, and then what's that cause? That causes uh, stable coin issuers to start having to liquidate the reserves of assets that are backing the stable coin, depressing the market value of those assets, causing fire sales. Uh, and and the, the, the real question here that Alan raises, and this is where we're going to get into the, the next, you know, her kind of um, concluding section of this essay, whether this kind of run would pose a significant threat to the broader financial system and economy will depend on the contents of the stablecoin's reserve. So if Tether's reserves were largely in 
uh, you know, wrapped up in other DeFi assets, you know, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, uh, you know, NFTs, uh, you know, virtual real estate and, you know, Yuga Labs other side. Um, you know, if it were, if these assets were, uh, were, were in the DeFi ecosystem, it would cause these big spillover effects in DeFi. So it, you know, it would cause massive depressions of the asset market, of the digital asset market for DeFi. And it would also cause a lot of people to lose their money. But people who, again, as we've talked about, are you know, a relatively small number of population and people who should um, be more aware of the risk at hand. However, stable coins and DeFi were more integrated into the traditional financial sector, mass consumer market, uh, and, and, you know, the mainstream economy, then that's when we start seeing these massive spillover effects. If stable coins reserves are wrapped up in, uh, corporate bonds and stocks wrapped up in more traditional securities, uh, you know, wrapped up in things that other people's like pension funds are, are wrapped up in that other companies, you know, the stocks uh, and bonds of other companies, um, then, you know, and stay and, uh, uh, Tether has to start selling off, you know, billions of dollars worth of these assets to, uh, create liquidity. Well, that kind of fire sell is going to create what we saw with the global financial crash of like, you know, uh, shares just plummeting, uh, you know, uh, causing then causing index funds to plummet, causing pensions to evaporate, you know, causing all these just ripple effects throughout the whole economy that are going to impact more than just this casino, more than the people gambling in the casino, but impact everybody the whole economy becomes the casino you know it's possible then that uh that these kind of math with mass withdrawal that this kind of potential run this math mass withdrawal of stable coins uh could trigger runs on other institutions like banks that provide insurance for these deposit accounts and so on. So again, just more more state more ripple effects potentially happening um, if there were a, a, a lack of confidence in in this market. So I think this brings us to how to respond. So I think the core thing to remember is that, as we've outlined here, DeFi is not yet entrenched, but there are multiple contagions in which and vectors in which it can entrench itself and compromise the traditional finance system. And so regulators, you know, they might not be able to ensure that it never grows a single percentage point or whatever or crush it. But they can take steps to make sure that it doesn't grow and integrate itself into the traditional finance system, right? Especially because these sorts of problems in DeFi could destabilize the larger system, but wouldn't give any room for the sorts of interventions that we did, we had to do when the shadow banking 1.0 failed. 
you know, that, you know, and also as we've overviewed, the reforms of shadow banking 1.0 seem insufficient here, right? And so Allen kind of calls for separating DeFi from established traditional finance. She warns that subjecting it to bank-like regulation too early, right, is going to legitimize and turbocharge the growth uh, of it in a way that simply putting regulations that put hard you know, firewalls in place um, wouldn't. And that, you know, we need to look at shadow banking 1.01 because there are a lot of parallels, but two, because it didn't have to be that way, right? There were policy choices that were chosen to allow for um, and and prevent, allow for certain products to be made, prevent certain agencies from regulating them, right? Arguing that this was the necessary for financial strength, for innovation of capital markets, um, and that we needed derivatives technology. We needed to develop those things. And this is the same sort of rhetoric that's been pushed with stable coins and other DeFi projects. And so as, you know, she argues, pre, you know, regulators need to be precautionary, err on the side of caution, protect society from risk, from low probability, high consequence risk, right? And go out of their way to limit the growth of DeFi, um, especially because, as she goes on to argue, there aren't really as many benefits as people insist there are. So we are more we are in a better place to regulate it because it is not some sort of force that wants to be free, right? And those don't even exist. But it doesn't have even the benefits that might warrant an, an argument about whether or not to insulate it from regulation. I'll let you get into, into her kind of cost-benefit calculus, as she puts it, but I did want to underline a point here, um, which I think is really interesting and novel in a lot of ways uh, of this, like, you know, if we were to do, if we were to regulate DeFi, which a lot of critics, I mean, us included, have called for regulation of DeFi, um, that could end up backfiring. It could provide this credibility that DeFi craves by, uh, you know, by the C- uh, SEC, the CFTC, uh, you know, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, Securities Exchange Commission, by these big regulatory agencies, uh, you know, exacting regulations on on DeFi. It could provide this, as she puts it, you know, uh, regulatory imprimatur, um, and and thus, as you put it, you know. Uh, turbocharged DeFi's growth in a way that would not be possible without that. And uh, the reason I also bring this up and emphasize it is this is what we see happening with Andreessen Horowitz's uh, massive lobbying efforts in Washington, D.C. This is one reason why Andreessen Horowitz is spending so much money, time, and effort uh, lobbying in D.C. for uh, and creating, you know, sample uh, legis- you know, draft legislation that they are, you know, hiring, you know, lobbyists to then, you know, disseminate amongst Congress people and so on is that on one hand, they, they want to have a hand in shaping what regulation of this sector looks like because they also want it to be regulated. They want it to be regulated because that gives it uh, legitimacy and stability uh, in a way that it does not have. And it also will it will inevitably bring a lot more people into the into DeFi if it's regulated because people will feel like it's safer. This is one of the inherent contradictions I think we see in 
in Andreessen Horowitz's efforts, uh, you know, or rather one of the inherent contradictions we see within DeFi is between the like, you know, the anarcho-libertarian, anti-statist, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is a way to escape the the government uh to escape the you know the uh the you know the, the central government monetary system and all that kind of shit versus entries and horowitz and these and and you know i mean also uh sam altman fried uh the founder of btx you know um one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges has been doing the rounds at not only tra- uh, uh, like JP Morgan and Wall Street institutions, but also meeting with um, a lot of politicians in Washington D.C. So he's you know he's becoming a big uh, face uh, for for this as well. Um, you know they what they are doing seems to be inherently contradictory to uh, the you know was often seen as the kind of underlying political foundations of Bitcoin, and because they're like no we re- yeah. This is how we should be regulated. You know, regulate us and let me help you write those regulations because that is what they need. Their, their interests are, are purely financial. Um, they're not, their interests are not these like lofty utopian goals of anarcho libertarian anti statism in a way that I think like people like Peter Till are like true, true ideological, um, adherents. But people like Mark Andreessen and Sam Altman Freed are like, nah, man, we're in this to make money. And the way we make money is this shit being regulated, being given legitimacy, given stability, and ex- and given uh, a- a expanded growth um, through that. That's what we're interested in. So I think I just wanted to underline that point that Hillary Allen raises because it also, I think, really, uh, she doesn't mention this. But I think implicit in that is also pointing to all of these other really interesting um, contradictions, stuff that we talked about actually with Molly White in our episode with her. Yeah, so I think then, you know, this brings us to, okay, so the first thing is, is decentralization. Decentralization at large is heralded as a sort of uh, self-referential justification for this technology. Decentralized finance wants to create, uh, doesn't want to offer novel financial products or services. It wants to provide existing ones in in in, in a cent- decentralized way, right? Which justifies, which is why we need to create a DeFi system so that people can create them in a decentralized way, and maybe then they'll innovate further into new tools and products. Um, but the decentralization in of itself doesn't exist, right? Uh, the Bank for International Settlements calls it a decentralization illusion. And the argument here essentially being that, uh, you know, as we've talked about, it's not possible to anticipate all the possible eventualities. So intermediaries are often needed to resolve unanticipated situations. You know, she gives the example of reversing erroneous or problematic transactions, but also as I've written about, Bailing out uh, uh, crypto uh, blockchains or uh, uh, bailing out blockchain product uh, projects or liquidity pools after a massive hack, intervening and freezing stolen NFTs and returning them back to individuals, right? Um, if they were stolen off of some exchange, right? These are uh, just some of the ways in which centralized action is encouraged and necessary to keep some of the faith and trust in the markets high, and that maybe you could streamline 
shitty decentralized services for profit, but centralization is a force pushed here for economic reasons, not technological ones, and that when blockchains are successful, that's precisely when they begin to need centralization. There's also the point that she raises about how there's a perception that these are dehumanized, computerized activities, thus more legitimate because they don't have to rely on people, they don't have to rely on trust, they don't have to rely on permission. But at every single step of the way, they do rely on people who have the same incentives as others to concentrate wealth and power, right? We've talked about how A16Z and other VCs are self-dealing by investing in uh, funds, investing in projects, investing in tokens, investing in DAOs, inflating their price, leveraging that to show the success of funds to attract more funding and more capital to invest in more uh, funds and more projects and more tokens, right? That a lot of DAOs are controlled by institutional players, by large VC funds, uh, by traditional co- uh, crypto companies or other crypto firms, right? And that these people have larger say in how um, the governance structure operates than anyone with an individual token. And this is analogous to, as we talked about before, also the founder share situation at places like Snap or Google, where the founders have a special class, or Facebook, where the founders have a special class of shares that give them um, unbeatable uh, or give them veto power after any decision and make any of their decisions unvetoable unvetoable. You know, this is a problem where it ends up being that the decentralization is an illusion um, and that the industry is not providing its promise that everyone is going to be able to design the internet as they need it. This also goes on to talk about uh, the dApps, which require, uh, which which rely on a distributed ledger like the blockchain, which requires a lot of humans to operate. And that, you know, these are important layers of the infrastructure that are also built on the internet in of itself, right? ISPs can impact how uh, distributed ledgers are operating. And though we assume that ISPs are neutral, that's not the case. Most institutions and most corporations certainly are not just neutral arbiters, right? And so as she writes, most decisions relating to the operation of a distributed ledger made by the people with the power to validate transactions on that ledger and by core developers of the computer code governing that ledger. While the underlying code of ledgers like Ethereum and Bitcoin blockchains is open source, that doesn't mean there's no hierarchy in terms of computer programmers being able to modify that code. Instead, so-called core developers function as the leaders and decision makers in relation to codes. Validators are also important actors because they determine the definitive version of the ledger, which is the definitive record of who owns the crypto assets in the ledger. And so the main validation uh, mechanisms are proof of work, where miners, through trial and error, guess answers, essentially compute answers through, through, um, through brute force to a mathematical problem that's connected to a block of transactions. Once you have the answer, you submit it to all the nodes, and then the nodes verify if the answer works, and then the nodes by consensus adopt the block of transactions that the miners are proposing and verifying, adding it to the block of transactions in the ledger and verifying them. Right, but as she points out uh, through Angela Walk, miners select, order, and propose transactions to be added to the blockchain record, meaning that transactions do not appear on the blockchain record unless a miner chooses to put them on, and that the exploitation of the transaction ordering power has become a major issue because miners can profit from selling off earlier processing slots. And so, mining miners in this proof of work system are not just people, but they're people with conflicts of interest. They're not just simply a dispersed herd of individuals who are going to operate like automatons, right? 
And we see this and how, and you know, the easiest way to see this is that uh, mining power is consistently concentrated in a few places, right? That we see corporations and we see wealthy individuals, well-capitalized operations running large mining warehouses, right? It's energy intensive. And so as a result, it uses a huge amount of energy, but also the flip side of that is that it's usually concentrated in a few specific discrete locations where the energy can come in. And so this has led to Ethereum pushing for proof of stake, right? And in proof of stake systems, as she writes, right to validate transactions in a particular crypto asset comes in part from already owning a significant amount of that crypto asset. And so proof of stake addresses the environmental issues. It does not address the transaction validators conflict of interest and might even encourage concentration of ownership or collusion, right? Making this all of this, making this all worse. And then, you know, again, the computer code, this is an issue that we've talked about before. Also computer code is not on its own. It is governed and, you you know, implemented by institutions and individuals who are familiar with wielding their own power. You know, an example she gives is in 2016 when $60 million of Ether was stolen from the DAO, right? And then core developers and some miners banded together to hard fork Ethereum um, and rolled back the Ethereum network's history to before the DAO happened and then reallocated the DAO's Ether to a different smart contract so that with investors could withdraw their funds, right? Or again, in 2021, in September, when Compound you know, had a software upgrade that allowed that resulted in ninety million dollars being erroneously issued to the uh, users, and then the founders who said uh, founders said that recipients who didn't re- return to crypto would be reported to tax authorities. Okay, so you see that centralized intermediaries, centralized action. This is important. You know, Moxie had a had a had a essay a while ago where he talked about how decentralized services they don't scale well. Um, they never, they don't, they haven't had in particular with this issue, uh, but especially with blockchain and crypto transactions, right? And then the DeFi intermediaries, they they're mainly there to compensate for the difficulties um, that come because of the decentralized technology, right? Exchanges are critical to DeFi because they allow you to exchange, uh, but you know while you have decentralized governance structures like Uniswap, they charge more per transaction and they process fewer transactions than centralized exchanges like Coinbase. You know, as uh, as Moxie points out, if you uh, you know have a DeFi DApp that you and you look at it, it relies on APIs that allow quote users' devices to access the distributed ledger on which transactions take place because blockchains are designed to be a network of peers, but not designed such that it's really possible for your mobile br- device or your browser to be one of those peers, right? They rely on client APIs that are provided by a few centralized actors. So they're critical intermediaries, again, infrastructure as such. All of them have the power to prevent users from engaging in these transactions, but users trust them not to, right? All this energy goes into creating a trustless system, but all of them are built on clients um, that have to be trusted, right, without any further verification. So at the end of the day, it's not really a trustless system. You require a lot of trust, um, Just and decentralization is not in self-politics. It doesn't obscure wealth or inequality or concentration of power, and it doesn't dispel the conflicts of interest that emerge, and the huge incentive is incentive structures present for people to act in their own monetary interests, nor does it dispel the self-dealing, self-referencing um, uh, na- uh, nature of the institutional players and investors who are trying to pump up and hype up uh, crypto markets 
in general, right? This goes on and on. Like the it it and it ends up being that decentralization is not only an illusion but a dangerous lie. It feels like uh, that is being present. I uh, used to justify the creation of, an, of a financial system that could potentially bring down the traditional finance system uh, doesn't actually satisfy its own promises, right? And more or less looks like the previous system. Uh, to close out one of her quotes with one of her quotes, right? In a book titled The Politics of Bitcoin, right, David Columbia argues that much of crypto's pro-decentralization rhetoric actually derives from extreme right-wing talking points about the evils of government. The existence of DeFi intermediaries can more easily be more easily reconciled with decentralization rhetoric if DeFi intermediaries are seen as less problematic than other kinds of intermediaries. Extreme right-wing ideology holds that no matter how much power corporations take, their power can never be evil in the way government power inherently is. Cynically describing DeFi as decentralized can also be an effective rhetorical strategy for avoiding regulation because if policy, uh, policymakers believe the decentralization hype, they may be misled into thinking there are no intermediaries to regulate. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and this is why, and Alan, you know, uh, uh, similarly you know, walks through in a little bit more briefer fashion, you know, the, the questions around efficiency and financial inclusion, you know, these other things are, are often uh, asserted as benefits of DeFi. You know, we've already talked about this, right? Like, we know the efficiency um, argument is in large part bunk. You know, we also know the financial inclusion argument is in large part bunk. I mean, just go back and listen to our episode on WorldCoin to see why that's not the case. Uh, and so, you know, this is important, though. It's important why Hill, why Alan is um, walking us through the so-called, you know, the supposed benefits of DeFi is because if we can, um, as she does, as we have done as well, um, you know, recognize them and knock them back, you know, actually say, well, you know, these benefits don't exist in the way that you assert they do in reality, or uh, there's a lot more costs associated with these benefits that outweigh them. You know, if we can do that, then it also uh, gives us then better arguments and better reasoning in terms of policy um, and regulatory proposals to uh, say that, you know, this is this is not just something that we need, you know, DeFi is not just something that we need to rein in, that we need to regulate, that we need to have better oversight uh, on, but instead DeFi is something that should be smothered in its cradle, you know, and at the very, at the very uh, best, you know, uh, or at most smothered in its cradle, but the very least uh, it should be contained um, and, you know, there should be a firewall erected between DeFi and the more mainstream economy, the mass consumer market, and traditional financial services and the, the larger sector. You know, we need a firewall to separate them uh, in order to prevent these kind of spillover effects from this, you know, shadow banking 2.0 to prevent uh, the inevitable catastrophe, crisis, crash that is imminent from contaminating the rest of the economy. You know, this is, you know, this is not, uh, DeFi is not some an, an innovation that must be nurtured and supported, but is instead a danger that must be contained and restricted. 
Um, that I think that is ultimately Alan's argument here. And I think it's a really powerful argument that she lays out really systemically, really, uh, or rather really systematically, really rigorously, um, and, you know, clear in a clear eyed fashion, these kinds of policies, you know, these kind of, uh, regulatory proposals are, are really necessary here. And we can't be tricked in the way that, uh, uh, policymakers were, you know, in the early 2000s into thinking that just because something is complex, just because there's a lot of money sloshing around in it, just because there's a lot of really rich people who claim that this is, you know, um, innovation and progress, uh, just in the way that they were doing with you know, credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities and these other uh, derivatives, you know, you know just because those the, you know that those people exist, we can't take their claims on face value. Um, and here as well, we cannot risk repeating history, especially not so soon. Not so soon right, after we like, already had a fuck a up. I mean, come on. Like, can we yeah. just not speed run it again? You know, please. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so there we go. Um, That's this paper, a really fucking fantastic paper. Uh, Well worth spending two episodes and nearly three hours talking about uh, in depth. Um, And absolutely one that I I know I will be revisiting more and more. Uh, And in fact, I mean... Hillary J. Allen, you know, know, she's been writing about this for a while. She's got a book coming out called uh, Driverless Finance, um, which is about all this and and stuff. So, you know, I think I I think another a a deeper mind for us to to go to um, for TMK, Uh, maybe a maybe a little future guest, too. Um, Yeah, possibilities. Stay tuned for that with that bring to a close our two-part series on this paper uh, and on DeFi and shadow banking. Um, So thank you very much, dear patrons and comrades, for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thanks for supporting the show. Uh, And so until uh, next time, you know, we'll see you next week with more to come. Later. Adios.
Bitch. Shit. Kill.